No matter how it looks, God's purposes are always accomplished. We're going to break this up into just two parts. The first, we're going to call Mordecai's good deed. In the end of chapter two here, Mordecai's good deed, it just so happened to be that Mordecai was in the right place at the right time to hear of this plan to lay hands on the king. Verse 19, that sitting at the gate. That's just another reminder that Mordecai is an important person. He is some kind of an official in the court. He'd made a life for himself. He was an important guy and he's this official in the empire, but that's really not why he's there. Again, he's there for other reasons. He's mainly concerned about his cousin Esther for her safety, for her well-being. Even though she's now the queen, Mordecai is still concerned about her. And text tells us that Esther is still keeping her ethnicity a secret. No one knows that she's a Jew. And Mordecai is in the place where he, where he normally is, and, and, and someone just happens to tell him this information that he isn't seeking out. It's very familiar from last week, isn't it? All these things are just happening, not really by anyone's desire, but these things happen. And what's revealed to Mordecai, he he passes on to Esther. She told the king in the name of Mordecai, and Mordecai's report was legit. It was right. These two guys uh, had bad intentions. And the king's life is spared, and, and these two guards find themselves hanging in the gallows. And verse 23 records that all this is written down in the presence of the king. The king knew his life was in danger, like really bad, and he knows Mordecai is responsible. He has Mordecai to think. A typical response for this kind of thing It's kind of like winning the lottery. It's a huge reward. Anybody that would show that kind of loyalty to to the Persian Empire, especially to the king, was often immediately handsomely rewarded. But for some reason, Mordecai is initially overlooked. It doesn't happen right away. We have to cross into chapter 3 a little bit, and then we see the author places the promotion of Haman just where the original reader would have, res- would have expected this report of Mordecai's prize, his promotion, his whatever the king was going to do for him. We expect to read that here, but that's not what's here. We have this Haman character, and he's, he's being elevated like Mordecai should be. Uh, dude, I need a favor from a guy. Who can like stand up and scream, this isn't right? Does anybody have that within them this morning? One, one of you can. Give it to me. Santi, just do it. This isn't right. Yeah, no, more. Wait, wait, that was better. Let me hear that one again. That's good. I may ask you to do that again. That's, that's, that's good. Yeah. I knew somebody had it in them this morning, probably from something too fresh, but that, that's what's happening here. Here's the point, okay? Mordecai and Esther, they're making the, the, the most 
of their circumstances. Esther's the queen. Mordecai just saved the king's life. Things seem pretty good, but then quickly, it just, again, one more time. Do it again really quick. This isn't right. That's what's happening. The, the reward for, for Mordecai, it, it's overlooked. The time for his reward, just, it's, it's not yet right. God's providence, it just, it'll need to come later. And if you've read ahead, you know that it will. But, but God has, has prepared the scene here. Like, I don't know, all the ingredients for a delicious meal. If you ever watch a cooking show, like they're already pre-measured in all those bowls. It's just prepped for a later moment when all of it comes together. That's what's here. It's all prepped for something later that will all come together. And we'll we just we'll learn from this part of chapter two that God did this long before the trouble was even in existence. God had this all planned and prepped way before trouble was on any radar. He made sure that the right people are where they should be and the right events have already happened when the trouble comes. And it reminds us that God's timing, it isn't like our timing. Sometimes God places someone years before they're, you know, needed. Think of Moses being in Egypt for 40 years. And then he was in the wilderness for another 40 years. Sometimes things go from good to bad. I just want to say that again. He was there for 40 years and then another 40 before God used him to deliver his people from Egypt. And Joseph was in Egypt 13 years before he was ready to interpret dreams for Pharaoh. David ran from Saul. He waited 15 years from the time he was anointed king to actually being the king. The Bible shows us this. God's timing, it's, it's different from our own. It's so different. But certainly all those people could have thought, what is happening? But again, no matter how it looks, God's purposes are always accomplished. And no matter how long our less than ideal circumstances last, we still need to know God's purposes are accomplished. Don't call it luck. Don't call it chance or fate. Don't call it coincidence. It's, it's God's providence. God is in control. Those words, they rob God of his glory, of, of what he's able to do and does do. God works in and through his people, often in ways we can't initially understand or, or figure out. And sometimes God leads us through an experience that we would never, ever, ever choose for ourselves. I don't believe Esther did. I don't think there's any way Esther thought, this is perfect. This is exactly the way I want my life to go. I wouldn't change a thing. I don't believe she thought that. I don't think we can be sure Mordecai is happy about being overlooked either. Why Haman? Why not me? Things are not falling apart. They're falling into place. Mordecai's good deed, it leads us to chapter 3. And let's call this uh, Haman's 
death warrant. I think that's what I called, yeah, Haman's death warrant. Verse 1, Haman, this villain, is introduced. He's advanced above all the other officials in the kingdom. We expected Mordecai to receive some kind of reward, but it's, it's Haman. And he has a great name too. I love his name because even if you forgot it, you would still get it right if you just said, hey man, it's little things I think about. It's what it is. He introduced us to us, this guy, Haman, like all the other characters in this book. You're never going to be able to forget that. I love it. Uh, it says that he's the son of an Agagite. It, even though we just sort of laugh at that name and we kind of just, you know, praise God that we don't have names like that anymore. There's actually a lot here with that name. This introduction, Agagite, that's trouble. It's not good. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. You got to know some Bible history here. But as we go back, we know that Saul was supposed to take out the Amalekites. And he spared Agag, the king, who was eventually killed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 15. Some history there. But that history goes way, way, way back. The Amalekites were Israel's greatest enemy, their longest enemy. They were constant trouble for Israel. They were the first people of the world to attack and try to destroy them. Back in Exodus 17, God promised Moses that he would one day completely erase the memory of these people, but that they would constantly be at war with them for a season. When Saul became king of Israel, God told him, wipe them all out. But again, Saul spared their king, and Samuel had to finish the job. So by describing Haman this way, the author is pinpointing him as an enemy of, of the Jews and certainly Mordecai. Mordecai's genealogy was, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was of the line of, of Saul. He was in Saul's family. And now here you have Haman as this part of the family that hated Saul's line. And they actually saw Saul lose his throne. So the scene is just set for conflict. And the original reader would have totally understood it that way. They would have read Agagite. Again, we like chuckle. They would have gone, uh-oh, this is a problem. They would have totally got that clue of this age-old conflict between Israel and her enemy. So a lot of time has passed, but this feud is still here. So they could be wondering, you know, is, is God's promise still in effect here? Would God still be faithful to his, you know, promise of victory over this old enemy? Especially when God's people had so failed to keep their promise to God. Would God be faithful? Well, we'll find out. Verse 2, the, the king orders respect for Haman. They were to bow. Even other like high-ranking officials were, were supposed to bow, which isn't unusual. It was just an etiquette thing. Don't think worship. Think respect. That's really what's happening here. And the king had to command it, which it should be happening anyway. So a little bit of an unnecessary command, but Mordecai didn't pay the respects despite the king's order. 
He refused to bow. In the text, it's silent. It doesn't tell us why. If you go down to verse 7, you, you get another little chronology note here. Now in the 12th year of the king's reign, it's possible that this whole not bowing scene went on for five years. It's happening for five years. And if Mordecai's mad about Haman's promotion, it's not totally clear. The, the other officials just keep asking him every day, why are you disobeying the king's command? And like Esther likes to do, this book, it restricts our vision. We have questions that we don't get answered. We'd love to know what these characters are doing and, and thinking, but we don't get to know why. The only clue we have to Mordecai's actions have to come from the text. I don't think it's a worship thing. It's, it's very likely this old feud. No self-respecting Jew would ever bow to an enemy of Yahweh, ever. And I also don't think Mordecai told the officials he was Jewish. Uh, verse 4, you could also translate that, it was told them, not necessarily he told them. And that, that really fits with Mordecai's whole, let's not tell the people we're Jewish thing. He's keeping it a secret. But whatever, either way, Mordecai's reported to, to Haman because he's Jewish. And I love it because Haman hadn't even noticed it's like, uh, I don't know if you can relate to this. Maybe when your parents get a new car and now all of a sudden that's the only car you see on the road. Like, wow, I didn't even recognize that car before. It's kind of like this. Haman had never seen Mordecai not bowing. Now it's the only thing he can see. He refuses to bow and that enraged him, but much more that he is a Jew. And he did rage. He's, he's easily offended, a hot temperate, a delicate ego, much like the king. He's a dangerous man. I'm so glad he's given such power. <laughs> and he takes it personally, even though it's the king's command. Haman had Mordecai in a horrible spot. If he wanted to end his life, he could have done it. He, he was disobeying the king's order, but that just won't do. Haman's fury, it grows and it spreads, as the text tells us, to all Jews. It wouldn't be enough just to punish this one guy. He wanted all of them gone and exterminated throughout the entire province. Gone. Way bigger conflict now than just this issue between two men. Let's settle this old score right here, right now. Amalek versus Israel. Fight night. It's on, and that's what's happening here. And again, just things aren't falling apart or falling into place. This is playing right into God's purposes for delivering the Jews. There's always been warfare against God's people. There's always been attacks on God's plan for his kingdom on earth. It began in the garden and it continues through till today. Uh, just one example, maybe thinking of the life of Christ, how much he was, was, you know, in jeopardy, even as he was born, Herod ordering the killing of all those Hebrew boys to and under. And Why? Because his life, you know, would threaten the throne and the chief priests report it, the scribes report it, this promise of Christ to come. 
And if Jesus would have been killed, that redemptive plan would have been thwarted. It would have ended. I always think of the life of Christ right at the end as he's hanging on the cross and all those people watching and even walking by, they're called passerby or like they, they shout too. Even the, the criminals on the cross, they also just sort of mock and they taunt Jesus to come down from the cross. Show us and prove to us that you are the son of God. If he had done that, of course we know that He would have failed to accomplish his father's purposes. There would be no gospel today if Jesus had come down. So he stayed. Even though it looked so awful, and it it was, God was accomplishing a purpose there, a great purpose. He accomplishes his purposes despite how things look. Let's sort of blitz through the rest of this text here. Haman is furious. Verse 7, he still needs permission. Talks about this, this purr, which is like a lot or, or like dice. They found these things are like clay cubes with markings on them. It was just a way for, for people to, they believe, to determine God's will for the future. Not God, but their gods. They would roll that dice and looking for advice. The date chosen is in the last month of the year. And it's such an interesting scene, Haman's so-called lucky day here, chosen by this dice. It actually leaves almost a whole year. We're going to find out why that's important in the chapters to come. But even here, I'm reminded of another great truth from Proverbs 16.33, which tells us it's God who controls the purr, the lot, the dice. That's under God's control. Verse 8 makes it seem like Haman is just so desperate to get this plan out. He approaches the king right away. He's the master at hiding his agenda. This concern for the king, give me a break. Oh, king, they don't live like us. They have different laws. This isn't good. Just a, honestly, just a bunch of, of lies. There was one sort of half-truth. Mordecai wasn't obeying, but he presents this group of people as a whole, and he convinces the king, it's not in your best interest to allow them to to live. Gotta take them out. And just to seal the deal here, verse nine, decree their destruction, he says, and I'll make sure the, the royal treasuries are replenished a little bit. Reminding us again that the king just had a horrible loss. History records that. This war with the Greeks, the royal treasuries would be depleted. And that little sound of money coming in would have been great words to his ear. He needed that money. He likes what he hears. Verse 10, 11, he gives Haman his ring. That equals the the king's signature and his power. And he says, you have my permission to destroy them. Use as much of the silver as you need. And I Notice verse 10, it's so interesting, it's worth highlighting. He's, he's given the same introduction as before, but now a new title. He's the enemy of the Jews. Just in case you missed it, let me spell it out. The author isn't hiding anything anymore. He is the enemy of the Jews. A king doesn't ask a lot of questions. He's not really prone to do that. Doesn't think of the consequences. 
probably blinded by greed and the size of that bribe, but he doesn't realize his wife is a Jew. He has no idea that the man who saved his life is a Jew. Verse 12, we see Haman summon the scribes. He wants to make public his wicked purpose. He wants to get everyone on the same page. The plan to annihilate the Jews is is actually 11 months away, but immediately he sends it out to seal their their fate. Jews are preparing to celebrate the Passover. It's still in the first month. They're preparing to celebrate God's deliverance of them in Egypt. And here we have Haman plotting to destroy them. It's so timely. Would God deliver them again? Haman is is thoughtful. He leaves no stone unturned. Everyone knows those titles, satraps and governors and princes. That's all the people in any position of power or authority. It's every language, every script. It's sealed with the signet ring of the king. And, and, and the plan is in motion. Destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews in one day and take all their goods. And as we've learned already from Esther, an edict like this is irreversible. Once it's in motion, it can't be undone power of the Persian empire is now turned against the Jewish people at the hands of this wicked Haman. Things have gone from good to bad really quickly. In verse 15, the king, just sort of seemingly oblivious to all of it, does what he does best, and he settles in for another private party, this time with just Haman. And the author makes sure to... to, Turn our attention to this. Confusion captures the city. Everyone thinking, is anyone safe? As we think about application to a story like this, to to this part of God's word, we need to keep asking ourselves, what do we do with these parts of the Bible? God, again, God isn't mentioned. No one does anything even remotely resembling a a, a godly, I don't know, activity. There's no mention of God. We have no insight into much of anything. And when we started this series, I told you that Esther is is such a, a helpful book. And just because God isn't mentioned doesn't mean that God isn't at work. Esther is an opportunity for us to take those truths that we know about God and bring them to this story and apply them right here. I I can't see what God is necessarily up to. I don't know his timing if I haven't read any further. I, I don't know what God is doing. It looks like things are crumbling. It looks like things have gone from good to really bad. Just because I don't know or I can't see, which, by the way, is precisely the way we live, I have to bring truth about God and I have to apply it to this situation. What truth would be most helpful here? I can pick one. I think Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
Esther and Mordecai find themselves in a, a spot here, a situation where, I don't know, some of their circumstances are the result of decisions they made. They could have gone back to Jerusalem, but yet they chose to stay. Mordecai could have just given Haman a little curtsy, and none of this would have happened, but he chose not to. But there are also circumstances in this story that are outside of their control. Esther was forced into that new queen contest. She didn't volunteer. Mordecai is overlooked for his good deed. And, you know, what's the point? They should be confident that all of this is part of God working out his plans and his purposes for their good and God's glory. And that's so helpful for us. What another great reason to embrace the gospel this morning. Life apart from God, so miserable and a, a constant fight for what you think is control of your life, but control that you'll never, ever have. Yet for those who love God, we're reminded, those who put their trust in the gospel, God is providentially in control of your life, working out, everything for your good, despite how it looks. God's at work through both those decisions that we make, maybe right, maybe wrong. He's working through those. God is at work through those circumstances that have nothing to do with us. I didn't make that decision. It just happened. God is also at work through that. His purposes are always, always accomplished. Esther 2 and 3 doesn't, teaches us that it doesn't mean life's going to be void of frustration. There can be things that make us go, that's not right. It isn't right. But we still look at it, and even though I'm confused or, or whatever, I can be confident that God is working these things through his time for my good. And I never have to doubt that. We can sympathize with, with Joseph that the harm intended for him when he said, yeah, you did a bunch of bad things, but you know what? God meant it for good. We should be able to say that about every moment in our life. No matter how it looks, God's purposes are always, always accomplished. Young people, no matter how quickly circumstances change, how things can go from good to bad. We never doubt God's control. God is accomplishing precisely what he intends to. Jeremiah 29, 11, write it down, a great verse. God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare, not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. No matter how it looks, no matter how it appears, God is working all things for his purpose. Heavenly Father, thank you for this helpful truth this morning. God, a timely reminder for all of us. God, help us to always remember to be quick to embrace this truth that you are accomplishing your plans for us no matter how it looks. God, help these young people see the benefit of following you, 
of giving their life to you. Pray that you would continue to open eyes to to their need for the gospel. Lord Jesus, write this truth on our hearts that we may never forget your love for us and your power to work all things for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.